One of the things that we're doing uh, during the series I mentioned earlier is connecting literal fruit to the fruit of the Spirit. And we sat down with a group of people and tried to think of what might match up. And I had some people this week say to me, you know, I think a number of people are sitting around the dinner table talking about what the fruit is going to be connected, what is the fruit going to be connected with joy. Um, and they gave me their answers and they were wrong. Um, and as you can see, it's watermelon. Now you may be scratching your head thinking, why watermelon? What's, what's the deal with that? Well, in my mind, watermelon is one of those fruits that it connects with a picnic and with fun. And uh, hopefully your family gatherings were more positive than negative, and so you have good memories of water, eating watermelon with your family. And there's something about the way we eat watermelon that, at least if it's, you know, in the kind of shapes like that, that we, we eat it differently than we do any other fruit. It's a kind of fruit that you, you want to eat outside. You know, you, you want to eat in the summer so you can spit the seeds, and though they don't make, watermelon don't have many seeds in them anymore, but, you know, you, you, you want to eat it outside, it gets a little messy, you kind of Dig your face into it. And there's nothing like watching children eat watermelon. And I found a few pictures that might stir some images for you. And when you look at those images, does that make you think of God? Does it make you think of the kingdom of heaven? Does it, does it make you think of the church? I don't know. We probably have to take a poll and find out if that does or not. But it should. In, in some way, watching children eat watermelon or things like that ought, ought to ought to trigger in our minds something about God and the church and the kingdom. Because Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to come to me like a little child. And little children are all about laughter and joy and fun and play. And most of the time, the reason that they, that they ignore those things, forget those things, that that's not a part of them... Is because of us. Because we squash it out of them. You know, they want to have fun, and our first words are no, no, no. Now, granted, there's a place for no. We need to say no to children. That's important to do that. But I suspect that more often than not, our no's are not so much about what's right or wrong, but just sort of bugging us. And as we get older, we forget that sense of joy and laughter and play that's a part of being a child. And and it's connected to the church because not only Jesus, does Jesus talk about children coming to, people coming to him like children, but also Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is not just love, but it's also joy. And if the Spirit's in us, if we're walking in the Spirit... If we are living in the Spirit and the Spirit is living in us, joy ought to be coming out of us. 
Joy has been God's plan for his people from the beginning. Back, way back in Deuteronomy, God says to the Israelites, I want you to come together for this feast and I, because I, I, I want you to celebrate what I've done for you and I want to make your joy complete. Jesus picks up that very theme in the New Testament and it intrigues me that this, this discussion he has with the disciples that much of it centering around joy takes place just a few hours before he goes to the cross. And he talks about how he wants, that he, that he has told them all of these things because he wants their joy to be complete. He wants them to know the full measure of his joy within them. And Paul just sort of summarizes the whole thing in a phrase where he says, always be joyful. Let joy define your life. Always be joyful. The catechism says, first question, why did God create people? God created people to worship him and enjoy him forever. Joy. The thing that I've been pondering as I'm thinking through this is, why aren't we more joyful? Why, why, isn't, why aren't we people who exude joy? Quite frankly, there is something about us that sometimes sends the message of, I guess I would call it somber prudishness instead of joy. We get so serious about our faith, and it is serious, and we need to take it seriously, and we need to be serious about it. But somehow in, in, the, in the process of being serious about a relationship with God, we create an atmosphere of somberness. And people look at us and say, I don't want any part of that. And quite frankly, clergy are probably the, at the point of doing that. Years ago, I saw a cartoon, a guy sitting in a, in a subway, woman next to him. She talks to him and he says to her, no, ma'am, I'm not a preacher. I've just been sick for a few days. Ouch. But it's true. I'm probably going out on a limb by, by talking about this, but uh, I, I'm... I'm not a, uh, some of you may be familiar with the, uh, the television show, The Simpsons. And uh, it's not a show that I watch, but I've read about it. And some things good, some things bad. It's one of those sort of irreverent kinds of things. But one of the things that I find as I read about it, particularly from Christians, is that there is this thread that runs through it about what, how people view the church. And quite frankly, it's probably pretty accurate a lot of times. And I was reading about an episode where um, Ned Flanders, who is the neighbor of the Simpsons, he's a Christian man, uh, a little bit eccentric, but he is a Christian man. And his wife dies. And in order to honor her, he, he builds this Christian amusement park. And he calls it Praise Land. And he puts in it these different attractions like Whack-A-Satan, which is like the Whack-A-Mole game where the little heads pop up and you smack it with a, with a mallet. And, and there's... There's King David's wild ride where you go into the spook house and all the children have to sit and listen to all 150 psalms read to them all at one time. And there's the, uh, there's the, 
the uh, Tower of Babel slide, and uh, there's a uh, there's a tithing pond. There's a candy kiosk where all the candy's the same, and it's all plain. And in the middle of this amusement park, there's a statue of his wife, Maud. And under the statue is this plaque, and it says, She taught us the joy, the, the joy of sorrow and the sorrow of joy. The, shame, the joy of shame and the shame of joy. And I read that and I think, really? That's the message that we're communicating, that joy is something... Shameful? And yet, we sometimes do that. People look at Christians and think, we don't really know what joy is about. Now, part of the reason for that is because we have different definitions of joy. The culture tells us joy is all about me. I experience joy when I get what I want, when I am happy, when what I want, what I'm hoping for takes place. It's all about me. And all you have to do is spend a little bit of time watching advertisements on television and you see that clearly. If you, and probably no more do you you see that more clearly than if you watch sports. So if you watch football this afternoon, take a minute and examine the ads that are coming at you. It's all about giving, pleasing us. And so if you buy this car, you'll feel joy. If you wear these clothes, you'll feel joy. If you eat at this restaurant, you'll feel joy. If you use this kind of deodorant, you'll feel joy. I mean, all of it is continually coming at us. And it's all about what satisfies us. What makes us feel good about what we want and giving us what we want. And that's joy. It's sort of, it's sort of embedded into our American culture, quite frankly. I mean, even one of the most important documents that's foundational to our existence talks about the inalienable rights to life and liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that we have the right to do everything in our power to pursue our own personal happiness. And there's, it's not wrong to, to engage in things that make us feel joy. But somewhere along the line... The definitions get blurred because in the kingdom of God, joy is not so much about what we get as what we give. I keep asking myself, what's the difference between just the general characteristics and culture and the fruit of the Spirit? What is it that sets apart love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, all of these? What sets them apart from our culture that basically says those are good things? Most people would say being kind is good. Being, being good is a good thing. Being loving is a good thing. Most of our culture would say that's good. But Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, there's something about the Spirit in us that creates and brings into our lives these same characteristics at a different level. And I think it's here. As with love, real love is thinking about self-giving sacrifice. 
Joy is thinking about not so much what we get, pleasing ourselves, as it is engaging ourselves with God. Because ultimately, the source of genuine joy is God. And all of the stuff that, we, that make us feel joy in this world is ultimately going to die or fade away or erode or disintegrate except for God. And so Jesus says, I've come to bring you joy. I've come to fill your life with joy. Not that, but this. And that means we're talking about joy that is not just life being perfect. It's not just life being exactly the way we want it to be, getting exactly what we want to get. It's something deeper than that. We have this mindset sometimes where we think if, if we could just get everything lined up in our lives. You know, we, we could just stop for a second and we get everything lined up the way it should be. Everything is in the place where it's supposed to be. And we take a deep breath and we say, okay, now I can feel a sense of joy. Number one, I'm not sure we can ever get to that point in life. And number two, if we can, the moment we take a deep breath, it changes. Something about the joy of God does not depend on life being perfect and us getting everything we want. It's about the presence of Christ with us even when life isn't perfect, even when we aren't getting what we want, when we're struggling, when we're burdened, when life is weighing us down, when we look around the world and all we see is despair. And our natural inclination is to feel cynical and to wonder if anything's ever going to come from this. Life's just, everything's just, it's just disintegrating. Why even mess with it? In those moments, we remember Jesus saying to his disciples, in this world, in this imperfect, fallible, fragile, painful world, you will have joy. Now the answer, the joy doesn't come because we deny reality. We're not saying that we'll feel joy because we're just ignoring the fact that life is falling apart. We're ignoring the fact that we are struggling with pain and agony and difficulty and we're wrestling with so much stuff. That's not the point. That's just denial. And we never find God, we never find Jesus in denial. And no one should face the reality and the truth of life head on more than Christians. Because we worship the God who is greater than all of those issues that arise. And that's the foundation of the joy. We aren't denying reality. We're simply seeing Christ in the midst of it. And joy becomes hope for us. Hope that however life turns out, whatever path life takes... There is more because there's Christ who went to the cross and rose from the dead. And so James can write, count it all joy even when you face difficulties 
because of Christ. But I think there's even a deeper, maybe more difficult level of this joy that we wrestle with. And that is not just that we are struggling with stuff in life, but that while we are struggling, other people are being blessed. And we wrestle with that. Especially people that we don't think are worthy of getting blessed. We're a lot better Christians than they are. We're a lot more connected to God than they are. We do a lot more for the kingdom than they do. Why are they blessed? And I'm just having to deal with so much stuff. Maybe that's why Paul, when he talks about the works of the sinful nature, right before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he mentions envy and jealousy. Because we wrestle with that. I do. And I would guess you do. If you, you, know, you see this sometimes with people in sports, as they follow sports teams. You have your favorite team, and every favorite team has a rival. If you're a Yankees fan, it's the Red Sox. If you're a Bills fan, it's probably the Patriots. And sometimes, we don't like to admit this to people, but sometimes we are actually more excited about our rival losing than our team winning. And sometimes we feel a little bit better about other people dealing with struggles than with us experiencing joy. John the Baptist is such an amazing character to me. I'm fascinated by his life and his ministry. You know, he he starts out in ministry, he goes to the Jordan River, he starts baptizing people and, and... there's hardly enough time in the day for him to baptize everyone who comes to him. I can, I can picture in my mind lines of people waiting to, for him at the, at the banks of the river, waiting for him to baptize them. And over and over they come, day after day after day. And this is pretty heady stuff, and this is big stuff. And everything, everyone in Jerusalem is thinking about John. Who is this guy? And he's awesome. Let's go see him. People are coming from all over the nation to John. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And people don't come to John quite so much anymore. They start hanging out with Jesus. Some of John's closest disciples decide to go hang out with Jesus. And some of the others come to him and they complain about it. What are we going to do? We're going to have to start some kind of new campaign. We got to do something. To, to, and John says, whoa, 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 wait a second. You don't understand. This is like a wedding. And Jesus is the groom. And I'm the best man. And the wedding's never about the best man. I'm just sitting here filled with joy because of his joy. And because of his success. And because of what God is doing through him. Even if it means everybody's looking at him and nobody's looking at me. There is a depth of joy in watching God work in other people's lives that is only possible through the Spirit. 
We can't manufacture that kind of response on our own. That's the Spirit in us. That's the Spirit working through us. That's walking in the Spirit. Because it's not natural. I'm convinced that we will only live with that mindset about joy. I'm convinced that we'll only have this sense of of rejoicing in other people's successes and, and trusting God and sensing joy in our lives, even in our difficulties, when we begin to understand that God celebrates and rejoices in us. I think that's a hard concept for us. For me, it's much easier for me to get, wrap my mind around God loves me than God rejoices because of me. I sometimes think God weeps because of me. God gets irritated because of me. God is frustrated because of me. But it's difficult for me to truly grasp that God looks at me and smiles and rejoices. And not because I've done something awesome for him, but just because I'm his child. And he loves me and I'm important to him. And I wrestle with that. But I'm convinced that that's at the heart of what Nehemiah is talking about as the people come together to celebrate the building of the wall and the reading of the scripture. And they get to the end of it and he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It is God's joy over you that gives you strength not to grieve when everything is falling apart. Not to be overwhelmed to the point of of being incapacitated when life is weighing us down. It is the the joy of God in our lives that allows us to celebrate other people's successes. Because we don't have to manufacture it. God gives it to us. We will never truly be people who exude joy until we begin to understand how much joy God feels about us. I was thinking about this with the parable, uh, the parables that Jesus tells in Luke 15. You know, the woman who has 10 coins and loses one, she searches her whole house and finally when she finds it, she goes to her neighbors and says, I found the coin, let's have a party and celebrate. And then there is the shepherd who loses a sheep and he goes out and he's looking all over the place for the sheep and he finds it and he brings it back and he goes to the neighbor and says, let's have a party and celebrate. I found the sheep. And there's the son who rejects his father and runs into the country and gets lost in everything out there and comes limping home and his father goes and gets the neighbors and says, my son has been found. Let's throw a party and celebrate. And it fascinates me in all three of those stories. Neither the woman or the shepherd or the father are irritated about what was lost. They just celebrate 
what's been found. And God rejoices over us. This week I read a story about a man who took his three-year-old daughter trick-or-treating for the very first time. As the, um, they got ready to go, it was one of those terrible autumn days, cold, pouring down rain. It was just chill you to your bone. And he thought, should we go? Should we not? But she was excited about it. It was her first time. He said, okay, so... He, he takes her out to the car and straps her. Well, they were going to walk, but of course in this weather you can't walk. So he gets to the car. He puts her in her car seat, straps her in, you know, locks all his belts, goes around to his side of the car, gets in, drives to the first house. Now he's, he's in the first house and he's trying to, you know, he's opening the door. He's got the umbrella in his hand. He's trying to open the umbrella without getting soaked. You know that, you know that, that feeling of trying to do that without opening it in the car and stabbing yourself. And so he's getting it out and he opens it up and he runs around to the other side where her car seat is. And he opens the door and he unlatches the car seat and he gets her out. And he's holding her in one hand, the umbrella in the other hand. And he's got a little, little pumpkin for the candy. And he, they run up to the door and they ring the doorbell. And the people come, oh, how are you? And, you know, they give her candy and they turn around, they run back to the car. And now they have to reverse the whole process again. And he opens the door and he's trying to keep the umbrella up and get her into the car seat. And he he gets her in and he latches everything. And then he runs back around to his door and he's trying to get the umbrella closed without, you know, getting himself soaked. And he gets in and he's just a mess. He's just drenched and he's cold and he's thinking we should just go home. He looks back and he sees her and he thinks, all right. So he drives to the next house and he goes, starts the whole process over again. And he opens the door and he's got the umbrella and he runs around and he opens up the door and he reaches in to unlatch her. And all of a sudden, she realizes what's happening. And, and her eyes get about this big and the smile just absorbs her whole face. And she looks up at him and says, we get to go again? And he said, you know, the rain, the cold, didn't feel it. There was just pure joy at seeing my little girl experience joy. And Jesus said, if you who are sinful... Desire your children to experience joy. How much more? How much more? Your Father in heaven. Father, we need joy in our lives. We need to know that you you celebrate us. Break down the barriers and the walls that keep us from seeing that so that we can be people who exude joy through your Holy Spirit.
We pray this through Christ. Amen.